we look at Psalm 23, it's, uh, it's a familiar passage. And so at one level, we sort of feel like we know what it's going to say, and maybe why bother looking at it. Another thing that I've noticed in connection with this psalm is when we talk about the God as the shepherd, uh, sometimes it ends up being about the sheep sometimes. Um, so, for example, if I say, what's a shepherd like? Then I'll say, well, the shepherd shepherds the sheep. So what are the sheep like? And we immediately jump to that description. So what are sheep like? And we'll come back to what the shepherd's like in a moment. But, but what are sheep like? We uh, see them in, in books, make little craft projects with them, maybe in Sunday school or for some kind of an art class. And it involves puffy cotton balls and, and nice bright sunshine and... And it leaves out all the bits about mud and rain and the fact that sheep have wool which picks up dirt and sticks and everything else that's in and around them. And so it's not as picturesque of a thing as we might think at first. Um, I became more aware of this uh, when the church I grew up in did a living nativity every Christmas. And so we got to go out and stand with the sheep. Uh, it was exciting, both because of the things I discovered about sheep that I didn't know, as well as the fact that one year the angel threw snowballs when the light wasn't shining on him, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm not sure if he was asked to be the angel the next year after that. But. So we say, okay, well, it's not really about the sheep. We get that sheep are not like this nice, neat little picture that we think of it. It's really about the shepherd. So what is the shepherd like? Well, then we start thinking about like descriptions of what the shepherd looks like. In my case, when I was the shepherd, I was wearing boots that were three sizes too big and snow pants and a sweatshirt and all this other stuff because my mom was worried I was going to catch cold. And I had quite an impressive headband because when you put a winter hat and then a headband on top of it, it looks like your head is really swelled. But the descriptions here are not really about the external appearance of the shepherd, are they? They're more about his character. What is he like? Some of the things he does, but really about who he is. And so I think it's good for us to have that focus as we look at this psalm together tonight. He starts out in verse 1. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the way that we might read that in English is, The Lord is my shepherd, and I don't want him. But that's not what it's saying. He's saying, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I won't be in need. I won't be in want. I'll have God's provision. How do we know that that's what it's saying? Because in the next verse it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Think about the context of Israel. We tend to think of, uh, whenever we see like paintings or pictures or things associated with this psalm, it's always like bright green grass and, and, and blue water and all that sort of thing. But think about what a lot of Israel looks like. A lot of Israel is dusty. A lot of Israel is wilderness. And so there's certainly patches of green pasture and patches of clear and spots of clear water. But that's probably more the exception than it is the norm. Um, think about Naaman's response when he was told to wash in the Jordan River. Why would I wash in this muddy stream when I could go wash in the clear water of my home country? Or think about why it was so interesting that Abraham and Lot divided up the land the way that they did. Lot wanted that green pasture that was close to the water. 
And so we certainly see a picture of provision, but we see a picture perhaps of God's sovereign provision in that this would have been the exception rather than the norm in terms of day-to-day -day life. And so the picture that they're painting is the idea that God provides for us not just what's out there, but God provides abundantly for his people, right? And even more importantly, beyond providing for what is necessary for the sheep in terms of food, in terms of water, it says, he restores my soul. And in this phrase, you see that David's not just talking about a sheep. He's not talking about an animal. As much as we would like to believe that all dogs go to heaven and that cats have nine lives and go to a better place when they've used them up, animals do not have the same sort of spirit or soul as people. Ecclesiastes ponders this. It says, Who can tell from the outside that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of animals descends downward or is gone? You know, that sort of idea. But we see from Scripture that man is unique among God's creation. And that is why we need our souls to be restored. How is it that our souls are restored? Through a relationship with God. And he, he, he sort of is, is holding two pictures in his hand. One is the idea of here's a man walking and following after God as God leads him along. And here's the picture of the sheep being guided by the shepherd and so he's sort of, it's, it's like he's flicking back and forth between these two images. He says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And this really picks up on the sort of wisdom literature background of the book of Psalms and, and other books like Job and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. This idea that there are paths. There's a path that is pleasing to God. There's a path that is not pleasing to God. There's a path of righteousness. There's a path of wickedness. There's a path of wisdom. There's a path of foolishness. The path of wisdom is the one where Lady Wisdom cries out and says, Learn from me. Fear God. Look to Him for provision. And then there's the path of foolishness where Dame Folly says, Come commit adultery. Enjoy stolen food and water. Do whatever you want. One path leads to blessing, and one path leads to destruction. And here, David is speaking of God leading his, in this case, David himself, along this path of righteousness. But why? It says, for his namesake. It's not really about David, is it? This is why there are a number of times in the Old Testament when people appeal to God, and they say, on the basis of your name, so that your name, your reputation is upheld, do this or don't do this. When God says, I'm angry with the people of Israel, I could wipe them out with a word, and Moses, I could start a whole new nation that's just from your family. Moses said, what will the nations around think of your name when you've promised to look after this people? It's about God's name. It's not ultimately or primarily about David's name or about the sheep. It's about the shepherd, which is why when Nathan comes before David and says, what have you done wrong? And when another prophet talks to David about the counting of the people, which God told him not to do, they say the issue is you shouldn't have done this because you've made it about you and not about God. 
and God's reputation will suffer because of your actions. And so in this picture, we have God leading His people for the sake of His name so that He will receive praise. Even though at the same time, God doing that benefits the ones that He's leading, right? It's interesting that it says in verse 3, He guides me in the paths of righteousness. And then in verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so when we go here and we see this valley of deep darkness or this valley of the shadow of death, um, it's an interesting contrast. You have paths of righteousness. You have this idea of restoring and refreshing and, and food and water and all those things being provided. And then you come to this middle part and, and now there's this threat of danger. But in the midst of that danger, what's the response of the one who's being led? I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's very interesting when he says in the next phrase, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because you look at that and you say, all right, I get the idea of the shepherd's crook, the staff. Why does he use the word rod? Do they mean the same thing? Do they mean something different? It's interesting that this word rod is translated scepter in other places. So what's the significance of that? I think the significance of that is that God is the one who rules and God is the one who also has the power to defend his people. So God has the scepter and God has the staff and God has the power, the right and the authority to rule and also to look after his people. And so at several levels this is interesting because David was both a king and a shepherd. And God is described as both a king and a shepherd. But the point is, regardless of what David faces, God has more than enough power, more than enough strength to look after him. And so David can rest securely in God's presence and God's power. And then it returns in verse 5, I think, to the same idea that it had in verse 2. If for the sheep the desire is for green pastures and quiet water, then for the human being who is following after God as the good shepherd, the idea is food and oil and an overflowing cup. He says in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And David, I think, certainly had a sense of this, right? To the southeast... You had the Philistines, to the east were the Edomites, to the north were the Syrians, to the south and further south were the Egyptians. David's kingdom sat among enemies. And he was constantly fighting to secure his nation from these various tribes and countries and opposing forces that would attack him periodically in various ways. And yet God gave provision to David even in the midst of all those threats. When it says, you've anointed my head with oil, we look at that and we're kind of like, okay, that's kind of a strange thing. Why does he say that? This was a sign that someone, it was a sign both of blessing, as this phrase is used in several other places in Scripture. Particularly, it was a sign of anointing from the perspective of the king being set apart to be the king. 
When Saul was supposed to be king, Samuel went, anointed his head with oil, you're going to be the next king. When David was going to be the next king, Samuel went, anointed him to be the next king. He didn't actually become the next king for a span of years, and yet that was the sign that he was the one chosen by God to be the ruler of Israel. And when it says his cup overflows, I think it's signifying the fact uh, along the same lines, this preparing of the table, a feast in the presence of the enemies, not only is he having barely enough to drink, but his cup is overflowing. God is blessing him and blessing him abundantly. Which is even more significant when you think about that part of David's life in the middle portion when he's not a shepherd and he's not yet king, but he's running for his life, living in caves, grabbing a mouthful of food wherever he can, grabbing water from rocks and streams and other places. And yet he speaks of God's provision as being abundant and more than enough. And when it comes to verse 6, I think verse 6, although it is similar to verse 1, takes it a slightly different direction to sort of bookend the psalm. It says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. The question that I think it raises for us is whose goodness, whose loving kindness? Not David's, God's. And this phrase, goodness and loving kindness, is used a bunch of times in the Old Testament. I don't know that we could say it's the most often used phrase to describe God, but it's certainly one of the most frequent phrases to describe God's activity toward His people. Goodness and loving kindness, which is translated in other places, mercy or faithfulness or loving loyalty. God has made promises to his people, specifically to the king that he's appointed. And if God has made that promise of a relationship, of a covenant, of, of what he will fulfill, then David can say confidently, God's goodness and God's loving kindness is going to follow me. Despite his sin, despite the threats of enemies, despite facing death itself, we can say at the end of verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I don't think for David that was just the tabernacle, right? I think he was actually anticipating being in God's presence forever on the basis of the promises that God had made to him specifically and more broadly the promises that God had made to all his people. And so when we read Psalm 23, it's easy for us to think, of fluffy white sheep, a blue sky, green grass, and all of these sorts of things. But if that's the only picture that we have and we miss the main person in this passage who is God, then we've missed the point of the passage. What does the New Testament add to our picture of God as our shepherd? Turn over briefly, if you would, with me to John chapter 10. We won't spend a long time on these verses, but I just wanted to read them with you. And the irony of this passage is that it's set in the context of the blindness of the Pharisees and of them trying to say, uh, we're really following God. Uh, the end of chapter 9 says, Those of the Pharisees who are with him heard these things and said, We are not blind too, are we? 
Jesus said, if you are blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. You think back to the first part of John 9, the blind man is made to see. He believes in Jesus. The Pharisees keep saying, he didn't actually heal you. you, you know, and they try to explain the miracle away. Right after that, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow. They will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and they, my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Why do I read this passage in John 10? Because I think it sets before us this question. God was a shepherd of David. Is he my shepherd? Is he your shepherd? I think the answer to that question is tied to which of these two categories we see ourselves in John 10, 20, and 21. Do we hear the words of Jesus and say he has a demon or he's insane or I don't want to listen to him? Or do we hear the words of Jesus and say these are not the sayings of one who is demon-possessed. These are not the one sayings of one who's crazy. These are the sayings of one who has demonstrated the power of God. And just as God the Father is described as the shepherd in Psalm 23... Jesus describes himself as the shepherd in John 10. And he's the one that we must look to and follow and be led by. Because otherwise, where do we find ourselves? David confidently says in Psalm 23, I won't want, I'll have green pastures, I'll have confidence in the face of my enemies, I won't fear death. I, my cup will overflow. God's hand will be upon me. I'll dwell in his house forever. But if God is not my shepherd, those promises aren't for me. If he is, rejoice. Those are wonderful promises. 
If he's not, we should ask why not. And we should cry out to him and say, Jesus, be my shepherd. I need you to lead me. I will follow you. So Psalm 23, a very familiar psalm, but, but hopefully one that we'll think about this week. Let's uh, pull out our prayer update. And uh, let me know if there's any additions or changes to what's on your sheet there. Uh, one quick one, uh, if I could mention it. Uh, Clara asked prayer for her car. Uh, it looks like it's on its last legs, so she's uh, trying to find a new one and, and get all that worked out. So just pray that she'd be able to find something that would um, fit her needs and uh, her budget and all those sorts of things. And so I told her we'd pray for that tonight. And then also we should pray for Mike. He was not feeling well, so that's why he's not here tonight. And then also for uh, Bob as he's uh, teaching a financial workshop at another church in the area for the next few weeks. So um, other things to add. Did something where you want me to go out and try to visit with them on the house? So. Okay. Yes, Tina. Okay. Glad you could be here, Derek. So, um, one other thing, if I could mention, my friend Jesse, uh, the fellow that I did a lot of hospital and, and shut-in visiting with over the last four or five years, um, he's been in the hospital for about a week and a half now. Uh, just a lot of issues going on with his breathing. They'll put him on oxygen, and then if he gets up and tries to walk around, 
his oxygen level drops down into like the low 80s or something like that, which is supposed to be in the mid 90s, I think. And so um, I'm not really sure what their long-term plan is, but um, he was doing real bad maybe a week ago. Then he's been doing a little bit better the last few days, but not very stable. So pray for wisdom for, uh, for his daughter specifically. I think he's ready to go when God's ready to take him, but it's also it's kind of the uncertainty and the waiting that's really hard. So, be in prayer for them if you would. All right. Anything else? Okay. We can uh, split up into groups and uh, take the next twenty minutes or so and pray together.